Rome might be the eternal city. New York, the city that never sleeps. And San Franciscans say their city is actually European. A claim made by people who have obviously never even been to Europe. But Brighton is, well, it's Brighton. ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest here. The first body shop opened in 1976. It's the LGBTQ capital of Britain, and it's a place where locals support independent shops and cafes, and a distillery is no exception. During a recent data survey conducted by Shepper, which looked at which gins were being poured in pubs, bars, restaurants, and hotels in the UK, it was three leading gin producers that ruled. The only exceptions were Edinburgh and Brighton, where local gins from Brighton Distillery prevailed. Hi, this is Vela Mitrovic, editor of the Distillers Journal and Distillers Journal podcast. And I'm Ross McPherson, co-host of the Distillers Journal podcast. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Kathy Catton, founder and managing director of Brighton Distillery, and one of the nicest people you can ever hope to meet. To start this off, let me ask you this. Is Brighton Gin a distillery that just happens to be located in Brighton, or is it a Brighton distillery? It's a fantastic, fantastic question for me. So for full disclosure, I'm not Brighton born and bred, uh, but I've been here now for nearly 23 years. The identity of Brighton runs through me like a, like the name through a stick of rock. And it, for me, it was so important that something locally identified, and I always wanted Brighton Gin to be called Brighton Gin, is made and produced and done in the glorious city of, of Brighton and Hove. It comes with lots of complications with that. This is an incredibly expensive place. Any suitable space that would have been great for a distillery has all been turned into luxury flats a long, long time ago. But for me, it's just really, really important that something that, that has, the, has the name on the tin, so to speak, is made and done and created in the place that, that it's identified with. A spirit by nature can have a smell and taste, which reflects the natural area where it was distilled and aged. But can a spirit also reflect the vibe and feel of the city where it was made? I think there are probably about 80 different answers to it. I think Brighton Gin is, it's about the people who make it. I think that's a really, really core thing. So we're a small friends and family team, incredibly diverse by almost every every measure people are really actively engaged in the community people go out a lot everyone goes to the theater and the cinema and goes to see gigs and and loves all the things that, that brighton has to to offer so i think it's about a sense a feeling of a sense of place the spirit of brighton is about having a brilliant time getting up to no good uh, but also you know, you look after your friends and family. It's very community-centred. If you look at reviews why people in Brighton buy Brighton gin, 
Many start by saying it's because the numerous award-winning gin is excellent. Botanical this includes Macedonian juniper, milk thistle, fresh orange and lime zest from unwaxed fruit, angelica root, locally grown coriander seed which gives a spicy lemony flavor, and it's distilled with an organic wheat alcohol base. Of course, being made in Brighton, it's certified vegan, including the packaging. But here is the real contradictory part of all of this. The more gin distillers do things to stand out, it actually seems like they start becoming someone else's gin. I think that is a million dollar question at, at the moment. And certainly for the last few years, I think there's been a lot of conversation about when are we going to reach peak gin? I think the conversation now is we have reached peak, peak gin. Where is it going to go? There are more than six and a half thousand brands world, worldwide. Probably by the time I finish this sentence, there'll be another two added to that. So there is a whole world of, of gin. Obviously, thousands of those brands will never be for sale in, in the UK, but we've still got, I think, something like 2,000 plus. You, you probably know better than, better than I what the current number is, but it's something around that within the UK itself. These little islands have got all of this stuff. And uh, some of it is amazing. Some of it isn't. Some of it's in the, in the middle. We've really sort of nailed our colours to the mast of going for absolute quality. And whether that's in uh, the base ingredients that we use, we use organic wheat spirit, it's super smooth, it's amazing for dodging a hangover, it's just absolutely beautiful, beautiful stuff, uh, down to how we produce our bottles, every single one is, is made by hand, there's some clattering off off at the moment, and that's um, my mum uh, filling bottles and labelling and, and waxing them by, by hand. And I think one of the things that I love about gin is that whatever you're into, there's a gin for that. And actually, if the thing that you're into is pink or flavoured or sugary gins, that's great because you've got loads of those. That isn't a route that we've gone down. Although probably I wouldn't be riding around on such a rusty old bicycle if, if we had done that. But we actively took a decision not to. I love gin that tastes of gin. It's why I wanted to make gin. So, but we've, we've very much kind of gone down the quality line. Internationally, which is a big focus for Brighton Gin, particularly as we look to, to grow and scale and, and develop, we are very much focusing on taking our gin to uh, countries and customers that are really into a quality spirit, something that's smooth enough to drink neat, our seaside strength navy gin, which is the, the highest scoring navy gin in this year's International Wine and Spirits competition. Lots of people are using that as a, as a super dry martini basically having it in the same room as a bottle of, of vermouth and, and just having the, the gin. And so we're really trying to go to talk to people who love their quality, quality spirits. And those are incredibly diverse countries around the world. It's fascinating. But so for us, it might be looking beyond our shores here, although also we're called Brighton Gin. Being owned and loved here is as important as finding, if not more important, as finding other places around the, around the globe. A recent report looked at which gins are being served in bars, pubs and restaurants throughout the UK. 
pretty much the big three distillers control the market, except in Edinburgh, where Edinburgh Gin is the favorite, and in Brighton, where Brighton Distillery is the exception to the rule. Kathy, are you surprised at all by this? I have got the biggest smile on my face when, when you say that. It makes me, uh, it makes me very proud. I think that Brighton as a, as a place is, so if you've not been to, to Brighton before, it's by the sea, quite scruffy, uh, very friendly. You can go into the same pub twice and people will genuinely ask how you are. You can meet people easily here. It's a, there's a real community buzz to it. And it's full of independence, whether that's clothing, lines, people setting up their own T-shirt shops, coffee shops, it's just uh, record labels. There's tons of, this is a place where lots of people start things. In fact, it's the startup capital of the UK. It's my fun fun fact for you. Um, lots of people have a side hustle going on. It's quite an expensive place to live, particularly now it's changed a lot over the last 10 years. So lots of people have a main job and then do something creative and independent and hustly on, on the side. And I think that real celebrating independence is something that Brighton does really well. We've got a, a flourishing beer scene here. We've got five or six breweries within within the city itself, loads more in the countryside surrounding us. And I also think there's room for all of these things to exist side by side. I was in a pub the other night, uh, had five different schooners from five different breweries all within a few miles difference and everyone's very happy to be on that that board together we touched on this but now let's jump on it would you say that there is a super overabundance of gins in the 30 to 40 pound range uh i think it's a really in it's a really interesting thing to to look at because if i look back to when we launched what feels like a hundred thousand years ago but it wasn't it was 10 10 years ago and we, uh, at the time we launched, we were around the kind of £38 mark, uh, depending on what uh, retailers wanted to to put on. Some were 40 some were, were, were above 40 So we were, at the time, very, very punctually priced. Uh, what's been interesting is to see the, the, the tide that's come up ar- around, and I would say now the average price for for a craft gin is probably minimum of 38 38 quid kind of 38 to 40 so there's there is a lot going on in that price bracket and i find that very interesting because i i used to be terrified about the 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 price that we were but it's like well actually that accurately reflects a handmade product made with responsibly sourced whether it's the fact our bottle uses uh, 85% recycled glass, which is sourced from Brighton, and that kind of the whole idea of supporting the circular economy by making good choices. But none of those choices are cheap ever. Doing the right thing, really annoyingly, always costs more. It's always more complicated. It's one of the things that the world needs to change. Um, but I think there is this, there's a definite plethora within that space. And I guess as a consumer, how does that mean you make your choices where are you going to make your choice don't know is it going to be yeah not quite I, I don't know how to answer your question but i'm brave enough to say that with the spirit industry around the world you would think the only thing important to customers is the booze you make 
Whether the distiller's male, female, young, old, single, married, tattoos or no tats, gay, lesbian, straight, it shouldn't matter. And for those of us in the industry working with and around each other, it shouldn't matter either. But surprisingly, it does. I think that, and I want to say this without alienating anyone, I think that the spirit industry has got a lot of work to do. But I think it is trying to do the work. I think we have uh, huge issues of uh, around diversity. Uh, I say this as somebody who is uh, white, posh, able-bodied. I I have a whole load of privilege, but I also know that there are I don't know any other lesbian distillers, the the queer distillers that I know around the world, we've sort of gradually found each other. I can count, well, I'm holding up four, four fingers. So I, there are four that, that I know of glo- globally. Um, I think we have big issues in terms of race and class and all sorts of things. Um, but I think that it's something that's changing. I think what happens, particularly within the, the, the craft spirits industry, I think is really reflecting, albeit a few years later, the craft brewers. And I tip my hat to them because they've broken so much ground in so many ways. Um, but if you look at what's happening within the, the brewery scene now, where there's there are amazing female brewers and queer brewers and lots of collaborations going on all over the, the, the place, uh, that's really exciting. I think, though, there is a lot... Of work to do within within spirits and also within the category as a whole. There's tons of exciting stuff happening at a craft boutique, small small scale. And then as you get bigger, it's I suppose when money comes into play, that old chestnut, uh, we have more issues. But I think you know we've got within the UK we've got some amazing female distillers whether it's uh, Joanne making Bloom and all of all of their amazing stuff, the incredible Dr. Anne Brock, who's now helming Bombay. And I think the old adage of you cannot be what you cannot see, I, I absolutely believe. And I hope that there are lots of younger women, younger LGBT people who go, do you know what, actually this could be. I like food and drink and I'm creative and it's fun and interesting. I could get involved in that. Are your staff very inclusive by plan or did it just happen? That's such a good question because I I actually I don't know. So I so if I don't know I think it's probably it's probably by accident but I think it probably also reflects who I am as a as a person. It reflects our community. I mean I love the fact that we have got a 55 year age gap between our youngest and oldest member of staff. I just think that's it's absolutely amazing because both people benefit from that interaction. I love that we have people from all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, different identities from across the LGBTQ plus spectrum in a tiny team. We actually have a representation from from across the, the whole spectrum. That probably also reflects Brighton as a, as a place. Um, but it definitely, I think, in my background before, in, in the bad old days before gin was largely based around radio and community projects and being really involved in, I love people and I love Brighton. So I've had the chance, I suppose, to create, cur- curate and collect these brilliant 
Brighton characters together. I love it. I lo- I'm so glad that it's not a homogenous thing. Sometimes, occasionally, you're like, why can't everyone think the same as me and do what I say? But actually, I think there's so much strength in different opinions, different backgrounds, ages, everything. It makes it makes things much, much stronger to have that variation in, in opinion and in life experience. If you visit Brighton Distillery and you notice that as the sunlight floods in through the massive south-facing windows, the team seems to view this as like a vampire would. There's a good reason for this, though. For the previous six years, the distillery was located in a basement fondly called the cave. Is this new location all part of the plan or far from it? So, um, without meaning any disrespect to my, the area that I'm in, my, my dream uh, was and remains for, for Brighton Gin to be bang in the center of, of town. Uh, actually, over lockdown, I tried to expand into four different places, got gazumped on four different places by, in, in each case, by people with London-sized checkbooks versus a bootstrapped locally born and born and bred company. And we just, we couldn't, we couldn't compete. And then also we were getting to the point of, right, we've, something has got to to change uh, so our previous the gin cave known because it has no natural light has no windows it's this this a breeze block box uh, which we've kept hold of actually the idea being that we can do interesting things in there get some barrels in and do all sorts of bits and bobs but we were popping at the seams and now it's just down the road but every time i go back to go and pick up some boxes I've, i'm sorry i can't believe these amazing people, they've worked in there for six years without any natural light. Poor sods. Um, so I suppose the opportunity came up to come to come here. We are on a residential street. The building is so far from perfect. Right at the top of my wish list was ceiling height, which we absolutely don't have. Uh, but our landlords have very kindly cut a hole in the floor. So we have got the space for larger largest stills to to come in and for us to work here it's sort of very much a I mean much like everything Brighton Gin Shape it's kind of a make do and mend right okay this is we'll make it work you would think that because you're making the same product in the same area with the same number of staff etc that it would be just a case of changing the address line on the license and Bob's your uncle and you'd think that in a nice liberal city that there couldn't be much bureaucracy involved with expanding, but nothing could have been further from the truth. Kathy says it was like setting up a whole new distillery. How long did the bureaucratic process take? Two years, I think, two years. And then, and of course, ironically, we then actually we've been able to make this happen and take on new space just as we're lurching into this tremendously challenging time in terms of costs, whether it's energy, whether it's spiraling costs of, of raw materials, which uh, since Brexit have all just been getting higher and higher and higher. So I've just did a very nervous swallow there at the, the thought. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping, like all these things that sometimes, you know, you have to take your risk and take your, take your chance. In terms of mental and physical well-being, it's incredible to be in a, to have a, have more space and to be able to actually move safely without clonging ahead on a on pallet racking or stuff, I feel we uh, we have we we it's one of those things we couldn't have possibly we had 
totally plateaued. We couldn't do any more at our previous space. So we're taking the chance and now just hoping that the world doesn't totally and utterly collapse. But let's see. We're probably all hoping that. You're using three smallish stills. Would it be a lot more efficient if you have a much bigger still? So having a beautiful big still has always been on my on my wish list. However, we've been bootstrapped since since day one. And so that means you make a lot of decisions that are based around they're all always around resourcing. It's around time and cash, sadly, is what things boil down to. But we did make a conscious decision with the small stills. So actually, if we can have several small stills running in parallel and run them more frequently, then not only could we, we could afford the kit in the first place. I should be honest about that and go, actually, that's a we can afford this. Let's do it now. Now let's work out how we make it work. But also, if something goes wrong with one so we had an issue with a heating element the other day and a power surge and all sorts of things it means that there's there's a there's a backup there and that we can keep our production going and I mean I definitely have I've I have my my pinup of the uh, of this of the still that I'd want one one day um, but having the collection of several small stills I think it's about resilience in lots of ways at the moment I'm suddenly very very glad with the energy costs I actually this is this is a great this is a great system and we've got that backup thing if we had a single large still and we'd had the problem with the heating and the power going wrong like we did the other day that would have taken us out of action for however long until a specialized engineer could come and sort sort things out what are your production figures? So all slightly depends on whether there's a p- pandemic going on or not. Uh, but we, I think we can average at around 28,000 bottles a year. We're still at the stage where I talk about things in, in terms of bottles. I haven't, somewhere we've got a spreadsheet with nine litre cases on, but it, yeah, we're still in the in the bottles territory. And but it still seems like a bloody lot considering they're all done by hand. Can you describe your two gins? We have uh, we have two we have two core products, and again, that has been that's been a deliberate choice. Uh, it's been quite a hard one to stick to. I love making new things. I get very excited, and, and oh, we could do this and that and the other. But actually, that thing of having the blinkers on and going, we're going to stay in our lane. I would rather do a couple of things brilliantly and even with us with our seaside strength our our navy gin we've spent a long time developing and refining that and going it's it's good but it's not quite right if we're absolutely sure not only that it's as good as it can be but also that it's repeatable i think this is one of the issues with very very small scale production is it's a bit like George's Marvellous Medicine, that you can do that, my God, you made this amazing thing. It's absolutely incredible. But if you can't repeat it, it's it's, it's gone. Although Kathy refers to Brighton Distillery as Brighton Gin about 50% of the time, its proper name is Brighton Distillery, with no reference to gin in the title. Was this name chosen to give you latitude to go into other spirits besides gin? Yeah, so there is a there's a definite 
hope and aspiration that we'll have more spirits in our our spirits list there's some stuff that's made which again is also not not quite ready to to release into into the wild gin is always going to be my my absolute first love i have loved it since it was wildly uncool back in the back in the 90s and, and bartenders used to actively laugh in my face when as a young person I ordered a, a gin and tonic I absolutely love it I think it's magic magic booze um, but I'm also really interested in exploring experimenting with with other things you know within the team I know that there's there's lots of interest in brandies and I'm, I would love to make absinthe we're a seaside town, so you know, rum, whiskey would be an amazing thing. But that's a whole different setup. So we always have this tension, I guess, between all of the things we'd love to do, and in the meantime, being being practical and keeping going, keeping the lights on. There's no way we can make whiskey where where we are, for example. But yeah, all with our bank balance. You were telling us about how when COVID hit, you had to change dramatically to stay afloat. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the the years leading up to COVID, we actually we deliberately focused on really trying to build with the through the on trade, through hospitality, working with our wholesalers. We have nationwide wholesale listings. Like, okay, well, how can we increase those to bars and bars and pubs? And then on March 23rd, when hospitality closed instantly, it was a terrifying, terrifying moment because that shut 85% at least of our business over, overnight. We were in the fortunate position, though, that we were able to, uh, we'd finally got our necessary licenses in place to be able to sell direct through our website. And we went absolutely hell for leather on, on that front. We, and, and there have been so many unexpected positives that come out. There are always positives from, every, from any crisis. One is that we've really got to connect with our customers again. We were all out on our bicycles, masked up, doing safe, safe deliveries uh, to people's doorsteps and talking to people. It was, it was quite a humbling thing. I can remember delivering uh, a we also made not-for-profit hand sanitizer. We donated tens of thousands of bottles that around around Brighton and Hove, and I was delivering gin and hand sanitizer to a woman in in Hove on her on my push bike. Rang the doorbell, stepped back by several several meters, and um, she came and collected her bag off the doorstep, and she's like. I've already got three bottles of your gin inside. I just want to see you guys survive. And I have to say, I had a proper cry into my face mask at the side of the, the road. People were cute, really cute. And they sent packages of gin to friends and family around the country, marking lots of missed occasions. You know, sorry, we won't be together for your 30th, your 40th. You'll get married next year. All of these kind of things. It was really humbling. So how do you market your gin? We try and talk to anyone and everyone who's into who's into gin. Again, one of the millions of reasons why I absolutely love gin is that I, I think it's non-gendered. It is when we go out and do gin festivals, 
Uh, no, because the people are coming up and buying buying our, our G&Ts or buying our bottles, that it's anyone from 20-year-old lads to women in their 90s and, and beyond. Um, so in terms of our, it's always very hard to go, right, who is your, you know, that thing where you meant to like narrow down who your customer is to a single profile. So I think there are, there are hundreds of those. In terms of uh, marketing, we do everything ourselves. Our operations manager runs our Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Occasionally we remember to engage with, with Facebook. So it's all very uh, real, I think the, the phrase is. But I think, and it's like lots of things, Brighton Gin, it's, that's one of the things we've done through necessity. And now we can see a real value in uh, I love the fact that Charlie will post pictures of bottles being waxed or juniper being measured out and, and stuff. I love that that's, it's the real, it's the real deal. doesn't mean to say that I wouldn't love some really, really wealthy marketing company listening to this to come and give us pro bono support for, <laughs> for years. Um, but we also, we do, we're involved in loads of events locally. We work with the DIT internationally. I'm, um, uh, an, an export champion for them so go out and, try and talk to people about the value of export and working with different cultures and and the like as you can tell I will bang on about gin endlessly so I'm always happy to talk to anyone about anything and just but we um sadly we've never had a vast marketing budget I'd really love one one way Brighton Gin gets the word out is by being as eco-friendly as possible and in a noticeable way so one of the um, most people have a have a bike, and actually, it's of the very few perks that you get when you when you join uh, Brighton Gin, apart from being offered lots of gin, uh, is that everyone gets offered a, a bicycle. So we have lots of, of reconditioned former post office bikes uh, that have been spray painted Brighton Gin green out out the front. Actually, the roads are quite bad in in Brighton. It takes ages to get anywhere in a car much quicker on a bike our deliveries we now do our local deliveries are all done by e-cargo bike uh, which basically looks like a nicely decorated coffin on wheels um, in which we can take 40 or 50 cases of gin it's battery boosted so it's possible to actually ride it around town it's that's been one of those wins where it's not only much quicker so much cheaper to do but also it works with our eco credentials being as ethical and sustainable as we can be in every way is is a key thing for for us uh, and also it looks great the e-cargo whizzing around rachel's had a few times of small children going ice cream stop stop and her going i can't sell you what's in what's in this bike We should probably describe the location of Brighton Distillery, located 20 minutes away by bicycle from Brighton Beach Pier, except for the little doggy daycare across the narrow street and the commercial building the distillery is in. It's a residential area with Brighton Distillery slightly back from the street. You don't notice it. Just house after house after house till suddenly you're there. On one hand, this isn't great. There's pretty much nothing to attract chance walk-in trade. On the other hand, for thirsty neighbors, Brighton Distillery is it. Do you have a license to sell gin from the building? 
we do, she says with great, we got there in the end, su success. Yes, we do. So we do uh, cellar door sales. You can come in and, and talk to Jordan and uh, buy stuff, try stuff. Now we're in this new location. Actually, we've really loved meeting our neighbours who've all popped in for a, for a hello. Lots of people have bought, bought things and long may that continue. Like other gin distilleries, you'll be teaching people how to make gin. That's the, yes. You've seen our lovely shiny thing that, that arrived yesterday, so we haven't quite worked out how the heck that's... Also, things you order six months ago and expect are going to be a different size and dimension. It's like, oh, okay. But yes, we, that's the thing. We're looking, we're looking to get our gin school up and running pretty soon. We already do distillery tours here and tastings, cocktail masterclasses our team particularly uh, Charlie and, and Rachel are massively into their their cocktails they both just got their WSET level three qualifications which are hard to get it's kind of like the spirits equivalent of getting yours your first stage sommelier exams and we just love evangelizing about good booze and the role that it plays there are a few things nicer than having a G&T with mates and putting the world to rights. There's a lot of world to put to rights at the moment. Keep the gin a-flowing. Forgetting the off-again, on-again COVID crisis, there's probably 10 other crises going on, ranging from bottle supplies to the economy to energy prices. What do you see our Brighton Distillery's challenges coming up ahead? Wow, I, th I think there are... It's one of those things when you think, that's it. That's the we've we finally cut the last head off the hydra-headed monster, and then all sorts of things come. Sadly, I think that the logistical difficulties with moving stuff around and getting stuff into the country is going to that's going to continue for the for the while. All the post post Brexit things. Obviously, there are. Um, for other other companies who perhaps, for example, are, are sourcing their neutral spirit from uh, from wheat that's been grown in Ukraine, they're going to have significant issues there. That's not even thinking about the whole scale of human suffering. That's just, just purely thinking about the yeah practicalities of stuff. The cost of living, who knows? I've got the lights on today. I'm going to turn them off in a second. I, I think, yeah, there's going to be more more of the same probably for the next 12 to, to 18 months. I also, though, think that when they want to be, humans can be a resourceful bunch. One of the advantages of being a tiny bootstrap, literally built from the ground up, a distillery and organization is that actually we can be quick to adapt and to and to try things and, and to change stuff around. Paul, our distiller, has already suggested that we move to distilling overnight, uh, which will be pretty crummy for him, but is a, a great thing to offer to do in terms of dealing with the energy crisis. So they're all of those things. I hope that despite the pressures that people are going to find themselves under financially, I hope that people decide to drink less but drink better. We all of us need a 
treat and a bolster and a lift. And even if we're not able to go out as much and we're hunkering down indoors, you can always treat yourself to a Brighton gin and tonic with a slice of orange to give the hint of the hope of, uh, of summer coming again and that things will be okay. The lessons for all distillers to take from Kathy Canton and Brighton Distillery is the importance of tapping into your local community, becoming part of it, and perhaps the most important thing, having the right team. She knocks completely on the head the belief that becoming a success hinges on having the right equipment, the right software, the right building, and the right location. For six years, her distillery's location was nicknamed The Cave due to the basement room having zero windows and natural light. The only plant she had was a plastic cactus, and even that didn't look too lively. But she and her team have succeeded with over 20 regional, national and international awards coming from the liquid made with those stills. Just like everyone else, Catton has her list. She would love to have a beautiful copper muller still, a distillery in Brighton Central, or even better, right next to the sea. In many ways, it's easy to see that Brighton Distillery could become a major player with its craft gin, and in some ways they already are, although they don't seem to realize it. Still, as you leave Brighton Distillery getting handshakes and hugs from Kathy and the team, you have to wonder though if things were actually pretty perfect the way they are. The Distillers Journal Podcast production of Rebeat Media, produced and hosted by Velo Mitrovich and Ross McPherson. We'd like to give a special thanks to Kathy Canton and the team at Brighton Distillery, our sponsors, and most of all to you, our listening compadres. Have a good one.